starting with the first verse, continuing our Advent series that we've been going through the Gospel of Luke for the last several weeks, continue through it and uh, end next week with that Advent series before Christmas, but today we'll be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. If you'll allow me this morning, in addition to our text, uh, I would like to read a short clip, a short excerpt from what, in my opinion, may be the greatest work in all of American literature. Dr. Seuss, How the Rich Stole Christmas. It was quarter past dawn, all the who's still abed, all the who's still a snooze when he packed up his sled, packed it up with their presents, the ribbons, the wrappings, the tags and the tinsel, the trimmings, the trappings. 3,000 feet up, up the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip top to dump it. Poo-poo to the who's he was graciously humming, they're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up, I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the who's down in Whoville will all cry, boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put his hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started to glow, then it started to grow. But the sound wasn't sad. Why, this sound sounded merry. It couldn't be so. But it was merry, very. He stared down at Whoville, the Grinch popped his eyes, then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every Who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. Came without packages, boxes, or bags. Then he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. I won't spoil the end of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. If you don't know how it ends, I encourage you to either read it or watch it in any of the forms that it's available. I love that story, and I'm not kidding when I think it is one of the greatest pieces of American literature ever written. But what makes that story so compelling, the reason I read it this morning, is that Christmas should not have come at the end of that story. Pretty surprising that Christmas actually comes. And he hears the song and says, Christmas came all the same. It's literally called How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And yet it comes. As surprising as that is, he did everything he could to stop it. There were no gifts, there were no meals, there were no decorations. It shouldn't come, and yet it does. 
In our text this morning, the coming of Christ into the world is just as surprising a development. Not just that he would come, that he would be born as a baby, but how he comes can teach us a lot about his purposes in coming into the world, why he came. Just as it's surprising that Christmas still comes, given the circumstances in the grave, it's also surprising how Christ comes, given the circumstances in our text. From our text today, we can see four surprising aspects of Christ's coming. Four surprising aspects of Christ's coming. Four reasons why you would not think Christ would come, or at least not in this way. First of all, his rule was not expected. Look at the first three verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. The first inconvenient aspect of Christ's coming was that his rule simply was not expected. No one thought that a baby who would be born in this way might be the one who rules all things. Because the world had its own kings. The world had its own rulers. They weren't looking for a new king to rule over all because they had their gods. They had Caesar, Caesar Augustus. These kings were thought to be almost divine in Rome at this time. That's what Caesar Augustus' name is meant to bring to mind. He is, his real name was Octavian, but he was called Augustus because he was the august one, the illustrious one, the one whose name is revered and hallowed. For the Romans, they treated their kings almost like gods. They already had a king. And even under this king, in his rule, there were other kings, other rulers. Quirinius was the governor of Syria. There were other levels of authority within the power of men that was exercised and enacted before Christ came. There were kings and governors and emperors and kings over kings. There was a vast power structure already in place in the world that Christ was entering. And when these kings who ruled made decrees, people listened. Caesar Augustus decrees that everyone should go to their town to be registered. Then we see it happening. And these kings spoke, people acted. Their words were a law unto themselves. If Caesar calls for a census, there's a census. People follow these kings. Verse 3, all went to be registered, each to his own town. It's simply assumed that when the king, when Caesar says, this is what's going to happen, that is what happens. And the story, that is what happens. All went to their own towns to be registered. People followed the rulers of this world and they did as they were commanded to do. <clears throat> Christ's rule was unexpected because the world had its own kings. And we still do. We have our own rulers. We have our own nations and governments even now. <clears throat> These rulers think they're in charge of the whole world. Some rule as tyrants. Some rule by the people's choice. But they all think that they are the ones who are in charge. They make decrees. And things happen. Their words so often act as a law unto themselves, and we follow them. And I think it's easy for us who rightly follow and submit to the governing authorities to have our kings incorrectly ordered. I think it's so easy for us to forget that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. He is the one who rules. He is the king over all kings. It's so easy for us to have our kings incorrectly ordered. 
We often place too much focus on which worldly king we want to follow. This one, from this party, not this one, from this party. We put up yard signs, bumper stickers for worldly kings. We forget that the ultimate ruling authority is the God of all the universe. And we are to submit to his rule, his authority, over and above every worldly power. His rule is unexpected because the world already had its own kings, and we follow those kings. And yet Christ came as a king. See, the coming of Christ changes everything. The existing power structures of the world, its existing rulers, the way they rule, the way we follow them, all of it, it has to be totally different because Christ came. Because Christ came as king, we can have no other king. We can serve no other master. In a world which already had kings, Christ came as king of kings. In a nothing manger, to nothing Mary and Joseph, in nothing Bethlehem, they would live in nothing Nazareth to save a nothing people like you and me. His rule was unexpected. And part of what makes his rule so unexpected is because his family was not respected. It's the second surprising aspect of Christ's coming, that his family was not respected. You wouldn't think that the Christ would come to this family and these people. Look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. The father of the king of kings was not a king, but was a subject. Joseph, though he was of the house and lineage of David, was not a king. He wasn't the one making the decrees. That's how Luke lays out the narrative here. He starts with Caesar Augustus making a decree. Goes from him to a lesser authority of Quirinius, the governor of Syria. From there, he says, all the people everywhere went and did as they were told. And within that nameless mass of lowly people, we get the name Joseph. Joseph was not the one ruling or making decrees. He was not a king. He was a subject. Because David's line, the line of his heritage, had fallen out of favor. It had fallen on hard times. His ancestors had ruled one of the greatest nations the world had ever known. David in his power, Solomon in his wisdom, was the height of all this people's heritage, all the stories of the Old Testament. Joseph was next in line. And yet here he is, having to pack, having to get his pregnant, virgin, betrothed, travel to Bethlehem just to be counted so that he could pay taxes to someone else. Christ's family was not respected. The situation that Joseph and Mary found themselves in had to, in some ways, feel hopeless. You see, in our society, where we think of all our own destinies as within our own hands, we think that we can determine how much money we make. We think we can determine where we go to school. Our destiny is in our hands. We can go from rags to riches in a very short amount of time. Our heritage doesn't always play such a tight role within that. But in this time, your heritage was everything. And Joseph had one of the greatest of all. It's hard for us to imagine the weight of the ancestry that Joseph probably felt. 
to know that he was next in a royal line chosen by God, promised by God, that that line would never fall out of favor. They would rule for forever on God's throne. And yet, here he is, trekking to Bethlehem to be counted so he can pay the right amount of taxes to someone else, a different king in a different kingdom. Trekking to Bethlehem of all places. I said trekking because it wasn't where he was currently living. That highlights the inconvenience of having to follow Caesar's command. It also shows that Bethlehem wasn't the center of life for Joseph or for the people of Israel. It wasn't Jerusalem. It wasn't where everyone would periodically travel to to uh, make sacrifices in the temple for festivals or feasts. It was on the outskirts. It was just to the south of Jerusalem. It was not the center of life for Joseph or the Israelites. But tiny little Bethlehem was still at the center of God's plan. Look at Micah 5.2. It should be up on the screen. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth as from of old, from ancient days. See, God had planned from the foundation of the world that his son would come to these people in this place at this time. In the line of David, which had fallen on hard times, and to Joseph, who had no name, had no renown, had no respect, and in Bethlehem, who's too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. Jesus' earthly family was not respected, and yet he came. These people, he chose this family at this time, even though they had no name, even though they had no earthly respect, he chose this people, Israel, even though they repeatedly forsaken their covenant with him. He chose these people, these humans, to come and save, even though we are so unworthy of his coming. He came into a lowly family with nothing to save those who have everything. He came to this people, even though his family was not respected. And when he came, his timing was not ideal. It's the third surprising aspect of Christ's coming. His timing is not what we would expect it would be. Look at verses 5 and 6. Joseph is going to be met, registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. See, Christ's family was not traditional in the way that we would expect it to be. His parents were not married, and yet Mary was pregnant. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. Now, those words shouldn't be in the sentence together, right? Betrothed and with child is not exactly what you would want if you were, let's say, Mary's father. Yet we know there's nothing wrong with this situation. There's nothing uncouth about what's happening. She's a virgin who's miraculously pregnant by the miracle of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that the last two weeks. It's been a, a major point of emphasis in the narrative in Luke, that she is a virgin who is pregnant. It's central to our faith. It's central to the Christmas story. But everybody else probably didn't know that. All anybody else could see is not get married, 
yet very pregnant. This timing was not ideal because from a worldly perspective, Christ would have done everyone involved a huge favor if he had just waited a few months. Just a little bit longer. Till after they were married. Then their lives probably would have been a lot simpler. His timing was not ideal. On top of that, his family was on a trip. For six, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Nothing like a family vacation for a dire medical emergency. Mary wasn't at home. She didn't have her normal OBGYN. There were several days, if not weeks, from Nazareth and from home. Joseph is up to his neck in government paperwork that he's filling out just so he can pay taxes. It's been a long journey with a late-term pregnant wife who, yes, is blessed among women. And I'm sure Joseph had to remind himself of that fact the entire ride from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem. What's that? Your feet hurt? Oh, you're back too, still? Oh, I'm sorry, dear. Did you say you're cold? Five minutes ago you said you were hot. Blessed is she among women. Blessed is she among women. Blessed is she among women. It's into this environment, into this family, in this timing, that Christ the Son is born. His timing was not ideal. And yet he came. In the fullness of time. That's what scripture calls it. The fullness of time when Christ came. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. There is no way for those involved that Christ's timing felt like the fullness of time on that day. Israel had not heard a prophet of the Lord for 400 years. They were sojourners and strangers in a world living as a remnant under the rule and occupation of Rome. Mary, a young virgin, she and Joseph not married, his family far from home. And yet scripture says this is the fullness of time. I don't have the fullness of time today to unpack that idea for you. But looking back on it, we can confidently say yes, this was the fullness of time. It may not have been ideal for those involved from an earthly perspective. But us looking back on it can say yes, God's plan was absolutely perfect. In Christ's coming in this time, in this place, to these people. From a governmental standpoint, a political standpoint, it's the fullness of time. From a language standpoint, the, the way that people spoke and the melting pot of languages that were in that region at the time, it was the fullness of time. From a philosophical idea standpoint, it was the fullness of time. Scripture says it was the fullness of time. And if you look at the fulfillment of prophecies from the Old Testament to the New Testament, even down to the number of days and weeks and years, it was the fullness of time. He comes any earlier or any later, none of this is true. You see, the king is never late. He arrives exactly when he needs to. Though his timing seemed not ideal, Christ came in the fullness of time. And when he came, his welcome was not warm. It's the fourth surprising aspect of Christ's coming. That when he came, 
as king of kings to redeem his people from their sins, he did not receive a warm welcome. See, he was born as a human baby, verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. He was born as a baby. Jesus Christ, who was God, who is God from all eternity, was incarnate. He was made flesh. He was born as a human baby, a male child. In that moment, he who upholds the universe by the word of his power was born as a baby, much the same as you and I. He was human in every respect except for sin. And we can even see that truth clearly in this verse. He was wrapped in swaddling cloths in verse 7. You see, today we swaddle babies to try to keep them warm, to try to keep them tight. It helps them to sleep. And that day they also did that. But they did an additional step at birth to try to help the baby in an additional way. They would wrap strips of cloth around the baby less like a blanket and more like mummy's wrappings. They would take the strips and they would wrap it around the limbs in the hope that it would keep the limbs from being broken, from growing crooked. They would try to make sure that the baby had no deformities by wrapping the baby in swaddling cloths. Jesus was a baby. He was human. His arms had to be wrapped to try to make sure that they grew straight. He had a body capable of being broken, capable of being bruised in his flesh. He was just as vulnerable and weak as any other baby. He was truly human in the most real aspects of every part of those words. Now, if you're paying attention, you should have a question here, because I said he did not receive a warm welcome, and then I just talked for about a minute and a half about how much care he had from his mother, how he was wrapped. Okay, being swaddled doesn't sound so bad to us, does it? To answer that question, I have to remind you that he was born. He underwent a birth. You must have forgotten what birth is like if you think he had a warm welcome. See, six months ago, I couldn't have spoken from much experience here. I didn't know. Heard stories, didn't know. At this point, though, I can tell you, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that a human birth is not a warm welcome. That's why they come out screaming. They don't feel welcome here. They're cold. They're wet. They're gross. They're immediately grabbed and counted and slapped and wiped clean and weighed. And they're naked the whole time. They don't feel welcome here. So, yeah, you would scream too. And yet somehow, in God's perfect plan, he entered his creation through these exact same means. He entered into creation as a man, born of woman, as a baby, in the same way that you and I. He did not receive a warm welcome. He was laid in a manger. Okay, we know that. We've heard that. We've just sung the song. But a manger is a feeding trough. No crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down in sweet head. He's in a manger. He did not get a warm welcome. 
And before he actually came, he was told there is no room for him. There's no place for him. He was laid in a manger because there was no place for them in the end, verse 7. He received no warm welcome. The God of the universe was told there was no room for him. The creator of the cosmos steps into his creation and is told, there's no room for you here. He comes to save his people from their sins and he's told there's no room for him. He humbles himself. He's born as a man and he's told there is no room for him. <clears throat> he comes to rule the world with truth and grace and he's told there is no room for him. His welcome was not warm. And yet he came. He came with good news, great joy to all people. Came as a man, and yet he came. He was laid in a manger, and yet he came. There was no place for him, and yet he came. His life ended in a cross, and yet he came. See, the Christmas story is a story about a lowly and humble birth. But it is not only a story about a lowly and humble birth. On a not-so-silent night in Bethlehem. It's about that, but it's not only about that. It is also about the power and plan of the sovereign God of the universe who is coming to enact his plan of salvation regardless of the inconvenience, regardless of how surprising it may be, regardless of how little expected it might have been. He had a plan, he put it into action. He said, you may have your own kings, but there is one who is the king of kings and he is coming. You may have lost sight of the promises of God, but he is faithful to those promises, and he is coming. You may not think the time is right, but he who exists outside of time had a plan before he created time to enter into that time, and he is coming. You may have no room for him, but he can make his own room, and he is coming. And as he comes, what he brings with him is the glorious goodness of himself, which is good news to all people. That though your sins are as scarlet, he can make them as white as snow. There is a way, and it's him. There is a truth, and it's him. There is a life, and it's him. And all who come to him, he will never cast out. That's what Christmas is about. The cradle leads to the cross, and the cross results in the crown. When we think about the Christmas story, we should think about how surprising it is. We should think about how lowly and humble it is. But we can't end there. We have to also think about how glorious and majestic it is. We have to think about the ends for which Christ came. That he came to live the perfect life you couldn't live, to die on the cross you deserve to die on, to raise himself from the grave, to give you the promise, you the chance, and new life. That's what Christmas is about. That's why Christ came. He came in spite of the inconveniences. He came even though we already had our own rulers. He came even though his people had fallen on hard times. He came even though we weren't ready for him to come. And he came even though there was no room for him, he still came. And he came for you. And if you've never realized that this morning, I hope that today you finally understand 
And he did come. The baby in the manger came to save your eternal life. I hope you may finally know today that you're a sinner and he came all the same. You might finally understand that he's worthy of all your worship. He's worthy of all your praise. You might give your life to the one who came as a baby in the manger today. That you might put your faith in who he is and what he's done. That you might believe that you're a sinner through and through, but he, the baby in the manger, is holy in every respect. He lived the perfect life you were supposed to live. He died the death that you were supposed to die. And after three days, he rose from the grave, defeating sin, defeating death, and giving you the promise of eternal life with him. That's the Christmas story. It starts in the cradle, it ends in the cross, and it results in the crown. That the world had its own kings, but he is the king of kings, and he will reign. That's the result of the Christmas story. In response to that story, in response to those truths, all you have to do right now is place your faith, your hope, your trust in who he is and what he's done. You believe that he did those things, and he did them for you. And you repent from your sin and turn to follow him on his way of humility from the manger to the cross. It's my prayer that you would do that today. If you have. If you have, I would hope that you hear that story anew. That you are once again surprised by Christ's coming. It is surprising. Don't let the hundred nativity scenes you drive by make you forget that it's so surprising that he came. Christmas shouldn't have come, and yet it came all the same. Because Christmas doesn't come from the store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, is a little bit more. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for your plan to redeem your people from their sin by coming. By coming in the form of a man, by humbling yourself to the point of being born as a human, by enduring a world which claims to already have its own kings, by coming in the fullness of time, by coming to people who have no respect, accomplishing the work that you came to accomplish. Let us see that better today and every day. Let us know that more truly today and every day. Let us live like that's true today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.